Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 1977, British explorer George Megan set out to break the world record for the longest walk unaided by any form of transport. He began at the southernmost tip of South America and walked 25 miles a day for the next six years and eight months. In 1983, after walking 19,019 miles, Meekin arrived at the northernmost tip of Alaska and broke eight Guinness Book World Records. The first thing I thought when I honestly read the story about this guy was, what happened in my life, all that happened in my life from 1977 to 83, and it was a lot. Second thing I thought about is, man, I wonder if that guy wishes he had a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, you know, tracker to keep track of his steps, because it would have just probably blown up or something. But uh, anyway, accomplishing such a feat, regardless, is extraordinary, and it requires relentless determination an unlimited perseverance, and a hope that the end of the journey makes the journey worth it itself. Well, the Bible describes a believer's relationship with Jesus Christ as a walk. The word picture of a walk is appropriate because it um, is timeless. Walking requires intentionality. It requires movement and effort. It also requires relentless determination at times unlimited perseverance, and a hope that the end of the journey makes the journey worth it. Over the last several weeks, the Apostle John has been showing us what it means to walk with the Lord, and he continues to dispense his insights in his next letter, 2 John, that we're going to look at this morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to 2 John uh, and take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in this morning? If you need a Bible or forgot yours, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We'd love to loan you a Bible so that you can follow along with me. Uh, Second John is uh, a unique book. In fact, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible, and perhaps you're like me in that you have never read it before until today. At least for me, I'd never really looked at it in depth until this week, and that's because it's just it's not one of the more popular books of the Bible. But uh, John, you might remember, is uh, one of the last living apostles that ministered with Jesus. Uh, he wrote three letters in the sunset of his life, from 90 to 95 AD approximately, and uh, these letters were written to the church in Ephesus. And so we spent about 13 weeks looking at 1 John, five chapters, 13 messages, and now here's the second letter that John sent, and next week we'll look at the third letter and the final one. Now, the date that John wrote these letters is important because it means it would have been at least 50 years since Jesus walked on the earth and then was crucified and resurrected and ascended. 
It means that John has lived quite a bit of life after Jesus left. And you might remember John has suffered significantly for the gospel and done a lot of ministry. And uh, in fact, he's the only apostle that didn't die a violent death. Uh, all the other apostles were martyred. And uh, so Jesus, excuse me, John, he, he outlived Jesus. He took care of Jesus' mother and his family and then outlived them. And then outlived all of his friends, the other Ten apostles. Now, First uh, John, as I mentioned a few weeks back, is a letter of concern, and so is Second John. He's continuing to address concerns that he saw coming to the church and threats to the church at the end of the first century, and he knows his time is limited, and he's going to be going home to be with the Lord. Now, in the in the spirit of transparency, I want to admit just a. That uh, originally I intended to have a different title for this message. Uh, however, after looking more closely at Second John, I discovered that he continues some of the same themes that we talked about last week in the last paragraph of First John. And he also, uh, I noticed he has two key words in Second John that tie in with the title I used last week. So, thus, part two. Here we are. Here's two key words uh, that I want to make you aware of that you're going to see this morning. Love and truth. Now, Bible scholars, and the reason I mention this to you, and I mention the key words in 1 John, and then I'm going to mention here today these key words in 2 John, is that Bible scholars look for key words or repeated words in Bible books because it gives clues as to what the purpose of the letter is, and what the author's trying to say, and what the themes are. And thus, it helps interpret the true meaning of the book. Love is the first key word in 2 John. He uses it five times in the first six verses. He uses it to refer mainly to the horizontal love that believers are to have for one another because of the vertical love God has for us. And each time love is used... In 2 John, it's interconnected with truth, which is the second key word, truth. He uses it four times in the first four verses, all in reference to God's word and also interconnected with love. Both words set the tone for what John addresses in the remainder of this short letter. Now, here's a key verse for the book. It's a verse that I think encapsulates the theme of everything he's talking about in its purpose, and it's very succinct and simple. I want to encourage you to underline it. It's verse 8. There's, you know, 2 John is so short, there's not even chapters in it. It's just all one chapter. So 2 John verse 8 is how we would say it. It's on your outline and on the screen behind me. Let's read it out loud together. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now, throughout this series, we've heard John this venerable ministry veteran, uh, tell us one simple truth in several different ways. Real Christians really walk with Christ. This crusty old apostle in the sunset of his life in ministry, having seen so much, has been saying with the boldness of someone who has nothing left to lose and not much longer to live, He's been saying this, if you claim to know Jesus, then follow him. 
love like him, sacrifice for him, and if necessary, suffer for him. John has also been telling us the inverse for the last several weeks, and that is don't claim to know Jesus because he takes great offense at it. Don't claim to know Jesus if you, if you don't want to follow him, if you don't want to love him or love like him, and if you don't want to sacrifice for him or suffer. John says don't even don't claim to be on the team, man, unless you're actually going to play. Now, John doesn't want us to just walk with the Lord. He wants us to do it by walking in the truth and in love. Thus, our big idea for today, the sermon in a sentence is this, real Christ followers walk in truth and love. Real Christ followers walk in truth and love. You see, because real Christ followers understand that they've been saved from their sin and from spending eternity in hell, they love the Lord. And because they love the Lord, they love His Word. And because they love His Word, they constantly feed their soul on His Word. And because they feed on His Word, they love others the way God loves others, not the way they want to love others. John answers at least two questions for us in this letter. The first being, how, how can I balance the, the, a respect for the truth and the command to love people? How, how do I keep those intentions? So we're going to talk about that in here a few minutes. And then the other question John answers is, how should I treat false teachers? What am I supposed to do with them? And that's a theme that's come up over and over again in, in the, least, uh, the first letter, and it's going to come up again today. And so with that, if you would look at the first three verses, John says, verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. Here's point number one on your outline. John makes three points today. The first is this. Real Christ followers prioritize truth. They prioritize truth. Now, there's a, in verse one, there's a controversy I need to at least address um, uh, and explain to you. Notice he says, to the elect lady and her children. Sounds elegant, and doesn't it? Uh, there's been much debate over the centuries by scholars as far as what does John mean and who is he writing to here. Uh, although it's not critical, it can help when we discern who the addressee is in the letter, it kind of can help us understand the meaning of the letter better. Now, some scholars think that when John wrote to the elect lady and her children, that he was writing a personal letter to a female leader in a church located in Asia Minor. Others think, the other prevailing theory, is that he was using familiar language to a particular church. Interestingly, none of the seven sources I consulted this week was conclusive on either side. 
They either lean one way or kind of lean the other, but then kind of end up going, but we're not sure. And so if I was forced to make a choice, I personally think it's more likely that John was writing to a specific local church in Asia Minor. And here's why. John only uses singular pronouns in the first five verses. You see them there in your Bible. He refers to her children and also um, I, but then also goes on to talk about, uh, for example, dear lady in verse 5 and so on. But then he switches to use plural pronouns throughout the rest of the letter. There is one other intriguing verse, though, and that is verse 13. Look at your Bibles with me. When he closes the letter, he says, The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, what on earth does he mean by that? Well, the feminine language that's used in the first five verses is consistent with other New Testament letters uh, that refer to the church as the bride of Christ and its members as children. Uh, Paul talked about that in Ephesians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 11, and then John used that language in Revelation chapter 19. So what about verse 13? This children of your elect sister greet you. What does that mean? Well, given the context, it seems most probable that John was uh, writing to another church in the region, but then closed with a greeting from Ephesus, the sister church. Finally, one of the other reasons I think it's most likely John was writing to a particular church instead of a woman. He was writing to a church body and using feminine language is this. And one, one author makes a compelling argument that John did this to disguise what he was doing. You see, he wanted to possibly protect the identity of who he was writing to because persecution for local churches was widespread still at the time. And if his letter fell into the hands of the wrong authorities, it could end up making life more miserable for the people he was actually trying to encourage. And so uh, one commentator, I think, has a strong argument that basically, let's say some soldiers or local authorities that hate Christian churches are going through mail, and they're checking mail to see if there's any insurgents in town, and they come across John's letter, they might just open it up because of the quantity of mail, and they might see his greeting to the elect lady, and they might see his closing and go, oh, okay, no problem with that, and send it on through. And so it's kind of a, a secret letter, possibly. I thought that was a strong argument. So now that we've taken care of that, and you can sleep better tonight, not worrying about who is he writing this to, Let's move on to verse 2. John says, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, truth is that which can be based on objective fact or indisputable reality. This is why John and other authors in the Bible refer to the Scriptures as the word of truth. For example, in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Then there's Paul in Ephesians 1.13, who says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
And then Paul again in 2 Timothy, writing to his protege in the faith, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Timothy, or excuse me, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to one as to God, as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So John starts off his letter talking about truth, I think because he wants to remind his readers that church unity is built on the never-changing word of God, while church division, on the other hand, is built on the ever-changing preferences of men. So I think he's starting off here in the first three verses making his case for unity, and he's saying truth is how you get unity. Rallying around truth. Everybody getting on the same page, and the only way we get on the same page, and the only same page we can agree on, is this right here. So here's the lie from the adversary that I think John is trying to refute. And that is, your personal preferences are more important than truth. That's the lie he's trying to debunk here. Now, when I say personal preferences, I'm referring to issues that are not explicitly stated in Scripture or prescribed in God's Word. Things such as clothing styles or worship style or ministry philosophy, political affiliation, entertainment choices, or other personal liberties. To prioritize the truth means that we place truth, the truth of God's word, at the top of our list, ahead of our feelings, our relationships, our opinions, and our preferences. One reason the apostles emphasized this is that it's impossible to build unity around anything else. I mean, just if I was to do a survey this morning with each of you, and so let's say we put a camera up with a microphone, and I asked you, what do you think the church should be? Well, I think this, and I feel this, and I think this. What do you think church should be? Well, I think this, and I feel this. What would be your ideal church? We all would have different things that we would say. Personal preferences are as diverse as the landscape, and they ebb and flow like the tide. I have to be honest, I was reflecting on this last night. My personal preferences of what I like to see in a church have changed over the years. I can look back at different segments of my ministry where things I was felt strongly about, and now I look back and I go, golly, what was I thinking? I shouldn't have been pushing so hard for that preference that I had. But any church that elevates personal preferences, and I'm sad to say this, but uh, I've seen this with my own eyes, any church that elevates preferences above the word is destined for devastating conflict. Take, for example, the churchgoer who shot a fellow parishioner in Pennsylvania after a fight broke out over a seat in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning just two years ago. This was outside of Philadelphia. It really happened because it's on the internet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, 
I did. When I, I do a lot of research on the internet, but I try to be a good reporter and I corroborate my sources, okay? So, but the argument started when churchgoer Robert Braxton III, age 27, was sitting in seats that re were reserved by two other church members on Sunday morning. This was at Keystone Fellowship Church near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mr. Braxton responded with a explicative and don't touch me when a couple church members kindly tapped him on the shoulder and let him know he was sitting in someone else's seat. Well, witnesses said Braxton started causing a fuss over the seat, but soon calmed down after talking to an usher and one of the pastors. And so the situation was de-escalating. Uh, but that changed, and things became violent when Mark Storms, age 46, approached Braxton carrying his own gun, flashed his conceal and carry permit, and told the 27-year-old Braxton to get out of the sanctuary. Braxton then said, uh, what are you going to do, shoot me? Punches Mr. Storms in the jaw, and then Storms responds by shooting 27-year-old Braxton in the chest and in the arm. Braxton was rushed to a local hospital where he died from his multiple gunshot wounds. And the 46-year-old Mark Storms, who tried to clear the seat, he was arrested and charged with voluntary manslaughter and reckless endangerment. A sad story about preferences taking over instead of the truth of God's word. So how do we apply this? What do we do with this? Well, one application that comes to mind is that we need to unite around the truth of Scripture. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we are willing to fight for personal preferences, but then roll over on God's word. You see, he'd rather we fight for God's word and roll over on our preferences, because they're not worth fighting for. We need to hold them loosely. You've heard me say before that one sign of maturity, one sign of spiritual maturity in a believer is the ability to distinguish between a personal preference and a biblical conviction. Knowing your biblical convictions means knowing the word, and it takes discernment and some maturity to know, okay, um, this is worth dying for and fighting for, but, you know, where I want to sit or where I think I should get to park... I need to hold that loosely. That's not worth it. The famous quote often accredited to the early church father, Augustine, is, I think, appropriate here. Augustine famously said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So real Christ followers walk in truth and in love so they don't believe lies like, you know, the church will be better if it looks the way I want it to. Next, look at verses 4 and 6 with me. John continues, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. 
Here's point number two in your outline. The second point that John makes is that real Christ followers practice truth. They practice truth. You've heard me before uh, highlight pronouns. Uh, another pronoun worth uh, noting, I'm sorry, not pronouns, adjectives. Um, notice in verse 4 he says some. The adjective some. Some of your children. The elder is celebrating. Some of your children are walking in the truth, and that's great. He's encouraged by that. He's not celebrating the size of the church or the size of their budget or anything like that. It's that they're walking in the truth. He's, he's emphasizing spiritual health, and he's encouraged by that. But notice the adjective some. It's not many, and it's not all. I think it suggests that on the flip side of his rejoicing is an unexpressed mourning because many that had been led astray by false teachers, and he references that later. In verse 4, he uses that phrase, walking in the truth. To walk in the truth means to arrange or adjust or readjust if necessary and submit your life to the word of God. It means that my feelings, my dreams, my plans, relationships, family, or advice from the world, if any of those things contradict the scriptures, then the believer should do what the scriptures say and trust God with the results. That means if your boss tells you to do something that contradicts the word of God, you do what the word of God says and you trust the Lord with that. John says then in verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. He says something here that I think is unexpected, and it's something, honestly, I'd never seen before until yesterday when I was finishing this message. And it, it's not well known, and it's often overlooked. John connects. He says, here's how you love. You walk in his commandments. He's saying that the Christ follower that wants to truly love their brother or sister in the faith can only do so by obeying what God has commanded him or her to do. The connection between love for one another and obedience is not well known, and I think this is in part because the adversary sells us a lie. So here's our second lie from the adversary. I think John is debunking here in verse 6. And that is that love is mandatory, but truth is optional. Love is mandatory, but truth is optional. The adversary tries to convince us that we must love at the expense of truth, as if the two cannot coexist. And that speaking in truth is unloving. And it's just not true. The word teaches the opposite, actually. One of the many reasons I think this lie is so believable is that most people want to be loved. Love is popular in the world. It's, it makes us acceptable and popular and well-liked if we love others the way they want to be loved. But very few people want to hear truth, especially if it's truth about themselves or truth that tells them they're wrong or that they can't have what they want. You know, I was 
Growing up in the Midwest, I had several different bikes over the years, like many boys do. I had a paper route for several years, so I put a lot of miles on my bike, um, hung out with my buddies, and we went, and we knew the places to go where we could do tricks and where there were ramps or hills that we could do jumps off of, and we were doing it before it was popular on TV. And, um, and so uh, one of my bikes... I sometimes would have to pull off to the side because after I did a jump or a trick, the chain would come off the sprockets. And, and if you remember doing that as a kid, you know, you're pedaling along where you've got tension on the chain, and then when the chain comes off the sprockets, all of a sudden, the pedals go like this. It's like spinning tires, you know? And then your legs fall off, and it's just, it's a messy thing. So, so I would have to pull off to the side and go, ah, rats, stupid chain, and put it back on, and... You know, it was one of the tricks that I learned was to put the chain back on top of the front bigger sprocket and then just start to pedal and it would reset itself and the tension would return. Well, I was thinking about that yesterday when I was thinking about truth and love. And what's interesting to me is that, is that without the chain to connect them, these two sprockets on my bike were useless. They couldn't do anything. There was no tension. However, but when they were linked together with the chain, with just the right tension, the two sprockets were able to work in tandem just as the manufacturer intended. Well, in a similar sense, love and truth have to be kept in tension with each other because God designed them to work together, not apart. Pastor and author Warren Wearsby summarizes this neatly when he wrote, Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. It's been my experience that individual temperaments and spiritual gift mixes that we have often determine which one comes easier for us and which one we might struggle with. So, for example, some of you might be going, yeah, truth, give me some more truth. And others of you are going, I just love love. Love is awesome. But you need to get better at truth. And then the truth people, which I'll admit I'm one of them, I love the truth. And I'm always asking the Lord to help me be more loving, and I struggle with that. But some of us, what I've been learning in my own life and learning as I watch people in churches and as it, some of us have got truth down but we need to work on being more loving while other of us have loving down but need to work on being more truthful. Did you get that written down? <laughs> so here's an application that comes to mind when it comes to practicing the truth and God's commandments in connection with love God said it, that settles it, I'm doing it. It's something I learned, I heard a Bible study leader say that when I was a young believer going through a Camps Crusade Bible study, and it just stuck with me. I liked it because it was so simple, and I never forgot it. God said it, that settles it, I'm doing it. Jesus came to earth more than just to die on the cross for our sins. He also came to show us a better way to live, and that is by doing the Father's will. You might remember that during Jesus' earthly ministry, 
He said many times and in many different ways that his greatest joy and his purpose in life was to do the Father's will. Interestingly, Jesus never doubted his Father. He never questioned his Father, and he never hesitated to obey him. Later, the apostles wrote in their letters that Jesus gave us an example that we should imitate. God said it. That settles it. I'm doing it. And so we should. Real Christ followers thus walk in truth and in love so they don't believe lies like I just need to love people because the truth doesn't matter. Let's look at verses 7 through 11 for our last point this morning. Look at your Bibles with me. John then kind of shifts gears and he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here's point three. Real Christ followers protect the truth. They protect the truth. In this final section, John resurfaces a topic, the topic of false teachers, because they are one of the biggest threats to the Lord's church. We learned in 1 John, where he raised the topic a few times, that a false teacher is basically anyone who adds to, subtracts from, or substitutes content in God's word. Therefore, anyone who says you need more than Jesus in order to be saved is a false teacher. And anyone who says you need less than repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved, is also a false teacher. False teachers have been around in every generation since the church began. They exist in every community and every denomination. Some have large churches, while others have small ones. Some have book deals and TV ministries, while others don't. Some dress like us, and others don't. The easiest way to detect a false teacher is to look at their character and their content, listening closely to what they say and what they don't say. It's likely that these false teachers John is referring to here in 2 John were infiltrating homes because they were not successful getting into the churches when the churches gathered, most likely because when the church gathered for worship, the elders were there with their antennas up and could shoo them out and kick them out of the service. So the adversary had these false teachers trying another covert strategy, which is let's try and get into the homes of some of these Christians and win them over that way outside of the church. Let's isolate them. Let's get them by themselves. 
And in fact, they probably, the members that were letting them into their homes were well-meaning, but they were gullible because they wanted to practice biblical hospitality, but they were unknowingly aiding and abetting the enemy. And so John says in verses 10 and 11, don't do it. But here's why it probably happened. Here's another lie from the adversary. Love should have no boundaries. That's the lie, I think, that enabled these false teachers to get into some homes. These false teachers who are agents, covert agents of the adversary, may have said, hey, we believe in Jesus. We're tired and hungry from preaching around the city and... You know, we need a place to stay overnight. Can we stay at your house? Didn't Jesus say you should help others in need? Didn't Jesus say that if someone is hungry, you should feed them? Next, they would get into the home and earn trust with these Christians and get them to disarm their false teacher alarm system and woo them away from the real church. So John answers the question, why should we protect the purity of the church and the gospel message? Here's letter A on your outline. In verse 8, he is just downright blunt. Notice what he says, so that we may not lose what we have worked for. You might remember me mentioning earlier in this series that John had watched all of his friends and all of his family die for the sake of the gospel. And he had suffered greatly himself. So he himself has suffered for preaching the gospel. And imagine, just imagine how he feels seeing these false teachers come in and pick off weaker, new baby Christians and lead them away. It would be as if you worked hard to build a house, and man, you're almost there, but every time you go to work on building your new house, somebody comes in the middle of the night and starts taking it apart. You show up the next morning, you go, what What happened? I thought I had the roof done yesterday. Why am I back down to the foundation again? So John's saying, we don't want to lose ground that we gained for the gospel. But the other thing he says is that we may win a full reward. And that's letter A in your outline, to avoid forfeiting rewards. So in addition to losing ground, John was thinking long term. He reminded his readers that the Lord will generously reward those in eternity that have faithfully obeyed his word and proclaimed the gospel. Next, John answers the question, well, how can we protect the church? And I'm grateful he does this because he made our job easy. He gives us the applications. And here they are, letter B. He says, always abide in Christ at all times. Always abide in Christ at all times. How can we protect the church? Always abide in Christ at all times. Well, what's that mean? Abide's one of John's favorite words in 1 John. He uses it over and over again. Last week I said to abide means to worship him at least weekly, to spend time in his word and prayer daily, to depend on him hourly, and to rest in him minutely. 
And by doing these things, our relationship with the Lord deepens. Our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit heightens. And our ability to push back against threats to the church strengthens. So always abide in Christ at all times. Here's the other application that John gives us on how to protect the church. Let her see. Do not aid and abet the enemy. Do not aid and abet the enemy. In modern legal doctrine, aiding and abetting is a criminal charge brought against someone who helps the commission of a crime. A person charged with aiding and abetting is usually not present when the crime is committed, but they do play a role and they can be held accountable and charged in court. Because of the increasing number of terrorist threats against our nation in the past few decades, federal laws have been created to punish those that aid and abet terrorists by harboring or concealing them, providing material support for them, or sending financial aid to foreign terrorist organizations. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, I think John, in verse 11, who says, For whoever greets him, these false teachers, and takes part, or lets them in, you take part in their wicked works. In other words, I think false teachers are terrorists attacking the Lord's church. They are embedded in communities. They have sleeper cells. They're very covert and crafty. So how do we avoid aiding and abetting them? Well, here's a couple practical tips. Don't buy their books. Don't listen to or watch their teaching. Don't support their ministries. And don't recommend their churches. Like, for example, if a friend asked you where to go to a church, and let's say you just had a lapse in judgment and didn't mention Vanguard, um, let's say, have you ever recommended a church because you checked out its doctrinal statement in what it teaches? Or did you just recommend the church because, oh, that's a pretty big church over there, and they have a really nice campus? not realizing that it could be a church with a false teacher. And so be careful you don't encourage friends or recommend books or, hey, you ought to listen to this message that are not approved by the Lord. Why? Because John says we're, we would be taking part in their wicked works. And that's heavy. I went to a conference a few years ago, a pastor's conference, and the host church invited a very controversial pastor who is known for preaching a prosperity gospel, who is known for not believing in the Trinity, and has several top-selling books, and it's on TV and all that. And I have to admit, I, I, at the time... I was intrigued by that pastor being invited to a conference. It wasn't a preaching conference. It was more of a, like a talk show format where the purpose of the conference was to kind of get pastors from different parts of the body of Christ together and have them engage and interact and ask each other's questions and learn from each other. Um, but when that prosperity preacher was invited, there was an uproar, a serious uproar, where... 
several churches left the association of the, the host association. And lots of blogs and things were written criticizing the decision. And at the time, I'm ashamed to admit this, and I asked the Lord to forgive me for this last night. At the time, I was like, ah, what's the big deal? You know, it is kind of good to hear and from other people and other parts of the body that we don't hang out in. And, you know, that's a good thing. But then I read this here in 2 John, and I went, ah, that wasn't a good thing. And now I know why there were some people really mad. And I should have been mad too. I should have, I should have condemned it as unwise and foolish. Because basically what the host pastor did is he gave a platform, a new platform to that prosperity preacher. He brought him into the conservative evangelical world of conservative doctrine, good, solid Baptist preachers. He brought the prosperity guy in from his charismatic, heretical world and, and basically said, here, you can be on TV with us and be seen with us. And we'll ask you questions that help us build common ground and show that we're just alike. And it was really bad. The ripple effect was significant. And there are people that still talk about it to this day. The conference never happened again, needless to say. And the pastor still gets criticized for that decision. So real Christ followers, they walk in truth and in love, so they don't believe lies, like love should have no boundaries. And let me say one last thing to clarify why love should have boundaries. In verses 4 and 6, remember that John connected love with walking in his commandments. In verses 7 and 11, he says, but don't love false teachers. Don't be hospitable to them. And so here's what I think John is doing from verses 4 and 6 to 7 and 11, if we put them together. Our love should be limited within the confines of God's commandments. Our love should be limited within the confines of God's commandments. So in other words, we don't want to show love and violate God's word. And God's commandments should always be done in love. Finally, let's look at the last couple of verses, 12 and 13. John says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. You know, if George Megan can walk 19,000 miles in his own strength, do you think you could walk one more mile in the truth and in love with the Lord helping you? Can you do it knowing that at the end of the journey, it's worth the journey, and you will be handsomely rewarded? I think you can. And so does he. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you again for John's frankness and boldness. Lord, please, would you help us to be a church that balances truth and love? Would you help those that are like me that love truth and are passionate about it and it comes easy for us? Would you help us to become more loving?
And Lord, for those that are really good at loving, would you help them to get better at truth and fencing their love within your commandments? Father, would you help us to grow in our discernment as well so that we can detect and identify false teachers? And I pray, Lord, that if there's any false teachers that someone here is listening to or they have books in their home or something like that, would you please just help them discern that they need to get rid of that material and stop listening to that guy or that gal because they don't represent you. Father, some that are here today are weary from walking. Would you please strengthen them and encourage them? Would you please help them to press on in the grace and strength that is found in Jesus Christ? There are others here today, Lord, that have not been abiding in Christ. Would you please give them wisdom and show them what they need to change so they can do that? And finally, Lord, there are some that haven't yet figured out the difference between a biblical conviction and a personal preference. Lord, would you help them to discern the difference, to be able to parse the two to where they're willing to fight for biblical convictions and willing to flex on their personal preferences. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the great sacrifices men like John and the apostles made so that we can have this word here today and the gospel message in your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.